Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, as we think about the church calendar, this is uh, Palm Sunday, as, as many churches remember, you're coming into Jerusalem. And the Jewish uh, custom was, it was Lamb Selection Day. And Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, but yet your people rejected you as the Lamb of God. But Lord, that did not uh, thwart your plans because you knew it all along and you knew that you were going to be on that cross in a few days. Lord, as we think about now, we think about all the world, the, the chaos and, and everything that's happening. Lord, uh, it, it looks like it, it can't get any worse. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are above it all. You are ruling and you are reigning right now. And Father, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, you are not unaware, and you are not untouched with the feelings of our infirmities. So, Father, I thank you that you can, you can take us and you hear our prayers. And, Lord, as we pray in accordance with your will, Lord, that we know that you'll hear us and we know that you will act, that you might be glorified. Father, we did lift up uh, Kathy to you as she's not here, and also Kathy Arlo as she is at a conference. But, Lord, we pray for Kathy, and, and uh, as she takes care of her beloved Paul, I pray, Father, for him that uh, you would help him as well, Lord, as he's, he's on the other side of surgery. But, Lord, I pray that you would heal him, his body, and his spirit, Lord, to where the, you will receive the maximum glory. Father, I lift up to you, I continue to lift up to you, the Kennedys. And, and Father, our dear friends are going through storm after storm right now. But, Lord, we know that uh, it's not going to last forever. And we know, Lord, even though it feels like it to them, that uh, it's, it's going to continue for a long time. But, Lord, we know that you also have them in the palm of your hand. We continue to pray for them, Lord Jesus, that you will cover them and you will protect them, that you will comfort their hearts over the loss of, of cotton, uh, their, their father, their father-in-law, their, their grandfather. Lord, we, we just thank you for his home going, that he knew you, and now he's enjoying your presence. Father, we lift up Cindy as well, Lord, as she is going through, through a lot of issues. And I pray that you would heal her too, that you would receive the maximum glory. And so, Father, I pray now that as we go into your word, we go into what the gospel is, the gospel, Lord Jesus, that you preached. Help us, Lord, to understand. Help us, Lord, to apply. And help us, Lord, to do what you have us to do today. In your name we pray. Amen. Words matter. Words communicate ideas. You know, Proverbs tells us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Even fine points of language can change the whole meaning of things. So look at this. It's a bunch of letters. And uh, it's like, uh, have you ever seen abundance on the table? But now, see if we can parse this out. Have you ever seen abundance on the table? Now, there's another way of parsing this out, and it goes like this. It makes all the difference how you divide up the letters, right? Or how about these statements? What's for dinner, Grandma? Or how about this way? What's for dinner, Grandma? One reminds us that Grandma is a good cook. And one is, well, not allowed in any circumstances. <laughs> but you're probably wondering why we're beginning the message this way. You know, first is to get your attention. Did I do a good job? And second, and much more importantly, how we say things can determine eternal life or eternal death. And when it comes to the gospel, how people present it and especially how people receive it can spell heaven with the Lord in eternal glory or under the wrath of God forever in eternal hell. Do I now have your attention? Last week we began a two-part series that I labeled the gospel that Jesus preached. As we look at the state of the church, it's no secret that she is in a sad state of affairs. Sin runs rampant in many local assemblies. False doctrine is loved and proclaimed by many pastors and other church leaders. From the pulpit, good is called evil, and evil is called good. In large measure, the church has lost sight of her mission or has deliberately twisted the very purpose for why she is here. I'm convinced that one of the major reasons the church is in the way that she is is because the gospel is misunderstood or twisted into something unrecognizable when compared to the gospel 
that Jesus and the apostles preached. Since today's message is part two, let me briefly hit the high points of what I talked about last week before we dive into what needs to be talked about today. And I say needs to be talked about. See, I'd much rather not have to bring to light what I'm convinced is in the dark with so many. But as I mentioned last week, part of my responsibility as your pastor is to warn you about the deception in the church. The Lord didn't call his people to change the culture, but he did command us to work with him in building the church. And part of the building up of his church is including exposing errors in many of the church, many people in the church embraces. The Lord also commanded me to equip you for the work of ministry. And nowhere is this more vital than to correctly understand and rightly handle the message of salvation through Christ. Last week, we walked through a common misperception about the gospel that the Lord Jesus proclaimed and the one that Paul proclaimed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and Paul says this, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says that it's this gospel that saves. And I'm relatively sure that when we think about the gospel, we think it is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ that Paul called the Corinthians to believe and that we are called to believe as well. But on the other hand, Jesus told people of their need to repent and believe the gospel. Now, is there a difference between the gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that Jesus preached? It would appear so, much like abundance or a bun dance on the table. See, Paul said that the gospel that grants eternal salvation is the belief in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus told people, on the other hand, to repent and believe the gospel. But he didn't exactly spell out what that gospel was. Well, what was it? What was the content of his proclamation? Last week, I asked the question, is the content of the gospel Jesus preached in any way, shape, or form different than the gospel that Paul preached? If there is a difference, then there is a massive problem. Listen in on what Paul wrote in Galatians 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know, Paul made it clear there's only one gospel that gives a person eternal salvation, and that's the one that he preached. True? So according to Paul's statement, even if Jesus preached, a gospel that was different than Paul's, then Jesus preached a different gospel. And Paul's pronouncement on anybody who preaches any other gospel is that they are to be cursed, eternally condemned. But let me get the bottom line up front. The gospel that Jesus and Paul preached were the same. No deviation whatsoever. Paul's presentation was a summary statement of the gospel of the kingdom the gospel that Jesus preached. The apparent difference between Jesus and Paul was one of emphasis. With Paul, his summary statement was the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to talk about icebergs in a little bit. With Jesus, his proclamation of the gospel was the same iceberg, but it was the entire thing, not just the tip of the iceberg. We said last week that the gospel Jesus preached was the gospel of the kingdom, and Jesus was king. Jesus used the term Lord, as we're going to see that Paul recognized the lordship of Christ as well. And so what was the gospel that Jesus preached? And by way of reminder, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God that Jesus told people to believe, was not centered on a prediction of his death and resurrection. See, it was centered on the good news that Jesus is king. As Isaiah 52, 7 says, as his foundation, your God reigns. That's the good news. That's the gospel that Jesus preached and told people to believe. And without a doubt, Jesus did predict his death and burial and resurrection, but the first time he actually said this was to his 12 apostles. 
those who had already repented, those who had already believed the gospel that Jesus preached. It was our God reigns. So allow me to quote in part of last week's message to summarize the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. And I'm convinced that he said words something to this effect. Listen up, Israel. The time has come. I am the embodiment of all the prophecies about the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is now here. It begins with me. I am Messiah. I am king. Repent and obey my word. I believe that is the gospel that Jesus went around proclaiming. And so today I want to use two analogies to help us untangle what is true and what is false regarding the gospel of what Jesus preached and Paul preached and the rest of the apostles and what passes today for the gospel. Now you notice there's two jars up here. One jar is filled and one jar is empty. One jar has a lid on it and it's filled up. And I call this the gospel of the closed container. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached. This is the gospel. It's closed. It's a closed container. The lid is on it. It will not be opened. The gospel of the kingdom will not be altered according to the spirit of the age. Make sense? The other jar is different. It is the gospel. Notice the difference even in the name. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the gospel. Different name. Different name. This is the gospel of the open container. It is empty. It's waiting to be filled with whatever influential men and women fill it with. Various elements of the spirit of the age. But now this jar has elements of truth sometimes, or what seems like truth. But again, the difference between the gospel of the closed container and the one of the open container is that this largely is open to whatever people want to put into it. They call it the gospel. Make sense? So as I reflect on, on what passes for the gospel with so much and so many in our day, I realize there's a lot here. And so I try to narrow things down, and I think I did it with most of them. I know I'm going to miss some, but three broad categories here. I'm going to simply name them and then briefly explain them. And let me emphasize, there may be true elements in the gospel, the open container. It's not absolute. They're not exhaustive categories. But my point is that you see that the gospel of the open container does not save. This does not save. This saves. Okay. Closed container saves. This doesn't save. We good? So here are the three broad categories. And it may sound like a mouthful, may sound complicated, but we're going to walk through them. And so the first one is, number one, your choice, religiosity. The second is a two-tiered spirituality. And the third is an over-realized eschatology. So in the category, the first one, your choice, religiosity, it is your choice as which scripture to follow. For example, Andy Stanley. He tells people that we ought to unhitch from the Old Testament. He says that the entire first part of the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, to include the Ten Commandments does not apply to Christians. Stanley also made some extremely troubling statements regarding sexual issues of our day. He told his audience at a conference recently that some homosexuals actually have more faith than some Christians. Now, he does talk about love, though. But his definition of love is strictly as the world defines it. And what's so deceptive about this false teacher is that he uses Bible words, but the meaning he attaches to them is foreign to the text. Now, Stanley is only an example of how many people tend to see the Lord. I've talked to a number of folks who really have this viewpoint. The word is Martianism. Now, we're not talking about the guys out in outer space, right? Not the Martians. We're talking about a guy named Martian. Now, Martian was a heretic who lived in the second century. He believed that there were two gods. The God of the Old Testament was full of wrath and anger, and we need to reject him. 
because the God of the New Testament has come. And the God of the New Testament is full of grace and mercy and all kinds of benevolence. So we need to reject the Old Testament God and accept the New Testament God. Another open container gospel that handles scripture in a pick and choose manner, and I know I'm going to catch some flack for this, but basically says that Christ only died for a certain group of people. They will call them the elect. But this idea contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture. For example, 1 John 2, 2 says that Christ died for the sins of the world. Everybody. John 3, 16 tells us that whoever believes in Christ should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So how is it possible, if Christ only died for a few select people, that he would give these statements in Scripture? Let me give you just one more passage among many which speaks about Christ dying for only a select few. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's opened the way. Why? Because he's died for everybody. Now, let's turn the corner and talk about the second one, two-tiered spirituality. Now, it is as it sounds. With this notion, there are many, and I would say even the vast majority of, of people who call themselves Christians seem to engage Christ in this way. And you've heard it, maybe, and, and all kinds of churches say this. It's almost like the new buzzword now. Trust Christ as your Savior. Now. They believe they're saved, supposedly because they made a profession of faith. They prayed a little prayer at one point in their lives. See, it doesn't matter whether their lives are changed or not. See, trusting Jesus as Savior is all that matters, or at least a, a, a pronouncement about that. They consider themselves converts and little more. However, from this group, there's a small minority who take Jesus and his claims seriously. When Jesus calls people to discipleship, this is what they want. At some point, they make a what they would call a lordship decision and make Christ their Lord. These kinds of people do mighty exploits. You know, they're pastors, they're missionaries, or they're monks, or they're nuns. You know, they go all out for God. But I hope you can see the problem with this line of thinking. See, first of all, Jesus never called anybody to be a convert. Can we get that straight? And Jesus never called anybody to make him their Lord. Let me give you just two passages to talk about this very thing. Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would lose, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice, Jesus did not direct this to people who just wanted to have a close relationship with him. He said, to whom? To all within earshot. As it's been said, taking up one's cross and following Jesus is an entrance requirement for anyone, he says, whoever would follow me. In Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus tells his disciples that the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, teaching them to obey everything Christ told them to do. In other words, the commission Jesus gave his followers was to obey him because he is the Lord, because the Father has given him how much authority in heaven and earth? All authority in heaven and earth. And what's most disturbing about this two-tiered spirituality idea, where people accept the idea of convert now, Lord later, is a dangerous twofold error. Scripture points this out. First of all, we do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. At one point, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess as to who Jesus is right now. It's just a matter of time. Second, Jesus addressed this kind of open container gospel idea in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice how he qualifies this. You workers, you practitioners of lawlessness. Now, in Bible Fellowship Day, we talked about this very thing. Lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. He says, people who practice sin, practice lawlessness, Jesus says, I don't know you. This is uber sobering. See, the people Jesus is talking about here are those that we can call converts. Those who sprinkle a little Jesus on their lives. They do religious things. And by the way, when was the last time you cast out a demon? Or did a mighty work? But these people did, according to Jesus. They rightly called Jesus Lord, and they called him twice for emphasis. Lord, Lord. They got that correct. But in verse 23, Matthew 7, Jesus will tell them, I never knew you because you practice lawlessness. It's as if Jesus was telling them, you know, you lived a religious life. You called me Lord, okay. But you practiced a sinful lifestyle. Your world revolved around you and what you wanted. You called me Lord, but your sinful way of life demonstrated that the Lord of your life was not me, but it was you. And that's the problem with the two-tiered spirituality. The third gospel of the open container is the over-realized eschatology. Now, it sounds kind of strange. It sounds kind of scary, but don't let it scare you. We're going to walk through this. Eschatology simply means last things, study of last things. And I'm confident that there isn't a person, at least in, in our culture, that hasn't at least asked one time, are we at the end of the world as we know it? You know, everybody tells us we're right here at the very cusp. Now let's tackle the phrase over-realized, over-realized eschatology. And the over-realized part can be like this. It's when we get the cart before the horse. It's like an over-eagerness to bring the kingdom of God to the culture in order to prepare it for Jesus' coming. Over-realized eschatology can be summed up in a very common statement. Make the world a better place. And many, many church leaders are right here, especially the very popular ones. And they're here in this idea because they believe that Jesus commanded us, commanded the church to change the culture. Many of these leaders believe that we need to Christianize society or at least influence it to such a degree that the church prepares the way for the world for Jesus to come back. They believe that through the preaching of the gospel that the world is going to get better and better and better. But that goes against the entire storyline of Scripture when it comes to the end times. Would you agree? See, Jesus made it clear. The world is not going to get better and better and better. The world is going to get worse and worse and worse. And let me remind us of his predictions that will come to pass before he does return. In Matthew 24, 21, he says, For then there shall come a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would survive. It's going to get tough. In verse 29, immediately, Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Who's going to be our rescuer? Because the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. It takes Jesus to come back to do this. Jesus' point here is the world is going to become an impossible place to live. And just when the world is on the brink of destroying itself, Jesus is going to be returning with power and great glory. Amen? It, it's going to get bad, guys. It really is. we got to prepare ourselves. So how are we supposed to deal with Jesus' predictions 
that things are going to get worse and worse, and then to buy into the idea that through the proclamation of the gospel, it's going to get better and better. See, this is a fallacy of the gospel of the open container regarding end of days. See, these leaders put into this container such things as wokeness to include justice in all of its descriptors. And by the way, when you hear the word justice with a descriptor, you can predict the very large accuracy, degree of accuracy, that what's behind this is the godless, the God-hating idea of Marxism. These church leaders have bought into a social, racial, economic, environmental, and even reproductive justice because they think that the church is here. The church that Jesus is building, we're trying to make the world a better place. And part of making the world a better place even has to do with prosperity, as in the prosperity gospel, so-called gospel. Certainly, the the notion goes, God wants you to be prosperous. And why? Not so you can just hoard it to yourself, but you can give it away. See, the more prosperous you are, the more you can give it away. And see what happens? The world gets better. The idea of making the world more tolerant place, because we're here to make the world a better place, right? So we need to make it more tolerant. And that includes the world's demand that the church is inclusive to all, fully embracing all, to include full association and membership and invitation to leadership of people of all kinds of things, homosexuals, transgenders, so-called, because we know we can't change someone's gender, correct? Two men or two women who are married, all these things we are supposed to, that they tell us, we're supposed to accept. We're supposed to be inclusive. Why? Because we want to make the world a better place. And the coercion of the world is that they tell the church what love means. It's not agape love. It is a love, a quote, radical inclusion of everything and everybody. And it seems that the absolute thing that the church can do is to be canceled, is to be taken away from the table of influence. And if that happens, then we become irrelevant. And then how can we change the world? How can we make it a better place if we're irrelevant? And so all of these things and more are part of the gospel of the open container. And it bears no resemblance to the gospel that Jesus preached. For the gospel Jesus preached is the gospel of the kingdom. Our God reigns. And this is the gospel of the closed container. Now Paul preached the gospel of the closed container. Let me give two reasons why that's so. First of all, it's his testimony. When Paul, who was Saul, went to go persecute Christians, he was on his way to a place called Damascus. And what happened? Those who know the story, Jesus knocked him down because of the sheer power of his glory. And the very first words that Paul said to this one, he asked a question, who are you, Lord? The very next thing Paul said, what will you have me? Paul's understanding of salvation was built on a two-layered foundation that Christ is Lord and Paul's need to repent. It was obvious that Paul was not following the Lord because Paul asked him, Lord, what will you have me to do? And then Jesus said, go to Damascus and will be told what you should do. And he went and he did it. The second reason we know that Paul preached the gospel of the closed container is how he described Jesus in 1 Corinthians. He said, Christ is the Lord Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ, 20 times. And so when Paul was talking about Christ, in his mind he was thinking, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, again, the gospel that Paul preached, which is the gospel of the kingdom, let's look at his description a little more closely. And so I invite you to turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15. If you need the numbers, uh, page 1063 in your pew Bible. And here again is Paul's description of the gospel, the same gospel that Jesus preached, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel of the closed container. For this gospel is a summary statement of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom, but he used shorthand 
story. He called it the gospel. Now let's briefly walk through it. And as we do so, let's change analogies here. One from containers to one of an iceberg. Paul reminded the Corinthians that the gospel, which he received and passed on to the Corinthians, was of utmost importance. It was the most important thing he could have given them. So let's start at the beginning in verse 3 with the name and the title Christ. The way this passage is put together in the original language, Christ is highlighted. It's marked off as special. And if we had, you know, if, if they had uh, word processors back in the day, the name Christ would be highlighted and it would be boldened. And so let's put the priority where Paul put the priority here on the gospel. For Paul, in preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the emphasis is on who Christ is. Paul being a poor observant Jew, according to Paul, who was Christ? He was Messiah, his king, the God-man, the embodiment of all the prophecies about the first coming of Messiah. Everything Jesus said and did is wrapped up in the first word of the only gospel that can save, the gospel of the close container. And this is where the analogy of iceberg comes in. And this is where we miss things. See, many people see in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that this in this totality is the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was again. That is the gospel according to many. And it's true. However, it's the capstone. It is the tip of the iceberg. And the focus that so many people have is upon this guy named Christ, what he did for us. This is what the emphasis is on. Christ died for me. But by way of analogy, let's zoom out, way out, and see not just the tip of the iceberg, but the entire iceberg. As we know, how much below the surface is the iceberg? And see, when Paul said that Christ did these things, what he meant was that not only above the surface, his death and resurrection, but just as important, everything below the surface is Christ, everything that Christ is. And so when Paul proclaimed the gospel, he first and foremost presented Christ as Lord, Christ as Messiah, Christ as King. Christ is the one who commands all to come and repent and turn to him. That's what he meant when he said the very first word of this gospel. And then Christ died. Just think about this. King of the world, the embodiment of all the prophecies, of Messiah, God the Son, the Son of God, this one died. As great and glorious as Christ is, he died. But why did he die? What were the circumstances that would cause his demise as great as he is? Well, the answer is found in the next phrase. For our sin. He died for our sins. For our rebellion against God. For our transgressions. Our abominations. He did this. The sinless one died for our sins in our place. Does that move you? He paid the total price for our sin. And what does this say about God's attitude towards sin? A death must happen in order to forgive it. God's not just a forgiving God because he's nice. There are things that God must have in place in order to do so. And I'm reminded what God says in Leviticus 17.11. The context is how God would forgive sin. And he said this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood needs to flow in order for forgiveness to happen. The truth is, our sin is absolutely despicable in God's eyes. The only thing that he would accept in payment for sin is a sinless sacrifice, and Messiah Jesus is that sacrifice. But it wasn't just the sins of Christians, as we know. We've already seen this. 1 John 2, 2. He is a propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. What does propitiation mean? It's a satisfaction, a complete satisfaction that God says it's okay, it's forgiven. John the Baptist declared this about Jesus. When he saw Jesus, 
He said, look, there goes the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Of the world, not just Christian. And so far we understand that Christ, Messiah, Son of God, God the Son, died for our sins. So what's next? It's a phrase in accordance with Scripture. And I can't think of any better passage. Even though it's lengthy, we need to hear this. It's so important. Isaiah 53, 3-12. Let's listen to what God, through Isaiah, said about Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made a grave, made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This, my dear friends, is the backstory, is the context of the death and resurrection of Christ, the Messiah, the God-man. This passage gives the context of that man hanging on a cross. Now we know that Christ's death was an act of love. Over and over we're told this. But if I had not heard of Jesus, and that was back in the day, because there are a lot of people who hadn't heard of Jesus back in the day. Mass media wasn't the thing. And even people like Herod didn't know who Jesus was. If I were to walk through and see Jesus on the cross, and somebody would tell me that's love, I would say you're crazy. That's not love if I had no context. See, without the context of Scripture, we would have no idea of the love that God poured out upon Jesus for your sake and mine. Is that true? And this is why the why people like the heretic Andy Stanley, who says we need unhitched from the Old Testament, could not be any farther afield. It is precisely the Old Testament that gives context as to why Christ died. We need to avoid people like this. So let's continue, 1 Corinthians 15.4, that he was buried. Now, why do you suppose Paul included that statement? Because that's what happens to dead people. They get buried. Jesus was not a phantom. He was not a spirit. And contrary to the views of an increasingly large number of people, Jesus was not merely a spirit housed in a body. No, Jesus was and is an integrated whole, like we all are. We're going to be raised. Every one of us is going to be raised. Some to the resurrection of life some to the resurrection of judgment. Then we have the last part of the true gospel, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Let's revisit Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when he has made his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And when the soul of Messiah makes an offering for guilt, Messiah shall see the offspring. In other words, Messiah will live after his death. 
Is that not called resurrection? And this, my brothers and sisters, is Paul's capstone, Paul's summary statement on the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel of the closed container. Messiah died, the king was buried, the God-man rose again. And after Christ was raised, he gave the apostles the commission. He said to them, you need to go out and you need to tell them that Christ was to suffer and die on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the only true gospel. It is the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the closed container. It is the gospel of the total iceberg, Christ above and below the surface. Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, the King, died and rose again. Repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. His name is the all-encompassing authority that the Father gave him. Christ died for all persons and all sin. Christ's resurrection placed him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. As I mentioned last week, the fact that he is where he is means he owns us, every one of us. Whether we're atheists, whether we're pagans, whether we're Christian, he owns every one of us because he owns the nations. That's the heritage that the Father gave him. He can do with us whatever he wants. He wants to shield us from the wrath to come. He wants to. The Apostle Peter in his second letter writes this again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anybody perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord doesn't want anybody to perish, but he will have no qualms about allowing that to happen. See, even his wrath glorifies him, for his justice is meted out because of sin. Of course, his grace and mercy glorifies him. He delights in displaying it. Remember how the Lord revealed himself to Moses. He said in Exodus 34, 5 through 7, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious. This is Old Testament, guys. Old Testament. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but his holiness as well, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so now, as I said this, It is your turn. Christ is Messiah. Christ is the King. He died for all sin, yours and mine. He rose again. He owns all people on the planet for the nations are his. With all sins paid for, each one of us has a choice. Will you just shrug off the sacrifice that Christ made for you, accomplished on your behalf? Or will you become reconciled? the king. See, you have the freedom to choose. If you shrug off what the king did for you, then you are living in rebellion against him. And you're living in the rebellion against the kingdom in which we all are living. See, each one of us experiences the goodness of God on a continual basis. Amen? And the Lord will allow all those who are living in rebellion against him to run their own life. Paul the Apostle tells those who are living in rebellion against the king, he says that you are free in regard to righteousness. But beware, no one knows when our last day on earth is. Virtually no one wakes up in the morning and says, this will be the day that I die. No one says this. None of us knows when it's our turn. The other response to the king, the other response to the sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf and mine, is that you turn from having yourself as the center of the world, the center of the universe, and to orient your life around the purposes of Christ. That's called repentance. See, Christ doesn't call us to repent from certain sins. 
He calls us to repent from our way of life, our lifestyle, and to put himself at the center, not us. See, Christ's open, nail-scarred hand is extended to all. We need to receive life from him and him alone. We are to deny ourselves and go after Christ. He loves us. He died for us. He defeated the devil. And for all who follow him, he gives victory over even the fear of death. Christ promises peace that the world can't give for his peace is found in relationship with him. Those who turn to Christ receive forgiveness of all sin and enter the family of God, where our highest joy is to serve him and seek to become like him. And the best part is the presence of the Lord in our lives. He promises he will never leave us or forsake us. And so with all that said, it is now commitment time. Time to become reconciled to Christ, your Lord, for he is Lord of all. And if in the core of your being, you're saying, yes, this is me. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I've lived in rebellion against God. And I now want to reorient my life to the purposes of Christ. I declare today my allegiance to him. Now, many in this room have reoriented their lives to Christ, and that's great. Many are reconciled to the king. But for those who have never done that or who have done this recently, I'm going to ask you to do something brave. I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. See, because when Jesus called people, he called people publicly. And he didn't tell people, you know what, guys? Listen, you need to bow your head and close your eyes because these guys over here, they want to make a commitment to me. He never did this, did he? When he called people, he called them publicly. So one of the best ways to do that here at Grace United, we don't call people forward. We just ask people to stand right where they are. And if in standing you're saying, this is me. I want to reorient my life to Christ. Then please stand. And by standing, you're saying, this is what I want to do. I want to pledge allegiance to Jesus. And I see Brother John right there. He has pledged his life to Christ today. And Brother Dennis as well. And so I would like to know who else would join these men who say today is the day. I now understand. I'm reorienting my life to Christ. Anybody else would like to do this? Don't want to be labor it, but these men need our support. You're among friends. We rejoice in what you have done and what you are doing today. Now, we all know, all of us who've been around for a while, we all know it is a difficult road. We may lose friends. We may lose status. We may even lose in other countries. It may come here, even our lives for the sake of Christ. And so I'm asking each one of us to begin to pray for John, begin to pray for Dennis, and pray and say, Lord, would you want me to enter into a discipleship relationship with these men? So you need to do that. You need to pray and ask God where you would want to be in this, in this, uh, in this process with these men. These are people who have now become a company, accompanying with us on the journey, on the road that leads to heaven to become one like Jesus. So I like to do is just pray a little prayer of commitment. I shouldn't say a little, I should say prayer of commitment. And so if you please join with me, we will commit our brothers to him. Father, we rejoice in what you are doing in our lives, in the life of Grace United Family Church, in the life of your church. Lord, we know that Grace United is a small part of the body of Christ. I thank you, Lord, for leading Dennis here. I thank you, Lord, for leading John here. And I thank you, Lord, that they have decided to place the orientation of their lives upon things that matter to you, Lord, and not things that matter to them. I pray, Lord, that you would establish them in the faith. And I pray, Lord, that they would not look back, but they would look to you. And I pray for all of us here, Lord, brothers and sisters, that we would join them and we would help them and we would commit our lives to helping them become more like Christ. Because, Lord, this is what you want of all of us to become more like you. So, Lord, I commit these brothers to you. Help us, Lord, to help them 
and we'll give you thanks and praise for what you have done here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, again, thank you guys. And uh, we will definitely be praying for you, and we will definitely be helping you in the years to come. Amen. This is a long haul. This ain't a, ain't a sprint. This is a, a marathon, as we all know. And so now I think it's most appropriate to do what we did at the beginning of the service or in the middle of the service, and is to declare our faith. Declare our faith. As you may have noticed, some of the words of the Apostles' Creed may sound a little bit familiar to you, but others may have not. It's a revision. All right. And uh, I, in fact, I've got a book in my library that talks about how the Apostles' Creed kind of evolved over the years. And I thought, if they can do that, we can do it, too, to make it a little bit more understandable. And so what I like to, to do is for us to, again, reaffirm our faith with the Apostles' Creed. And with the creed ringing in our ears, may we leave this building willing and able and eager to serve him. So it's on the screen, so let's recite it together. We believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his unique son, our Lord. He was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was killed through crucifixion, was buried, and preached eternal condemnation on the disobedient spirits in prison from the days of Noah. On the third day after his death, Christ rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, Christ will return to judge the earth, the living and the dead. <laughs> we believe in the person and deity of the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, along with our common fellowship, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of our bodies, and life everlasting. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for allowing us to be in your presence today. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us, and we don't have to overcome your reluctance to be with your people because you want to be with your people. I thank you for the work that you're doing in all of our lives here. And Father, now I pray as we turn our attention toward a couple more acts of worship, I pray that they will be pleasing in your sight. Lord, as we give, we know that we can't outgive you. And Lord, it's just a reflection of just a little portion we want to give back to you that you so richly bless us with. Father, also as we lift up our voices in song, help us to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to you because you alone are worthy. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name.